Hi, everyone. We're reading from Jonah 1, chapter 3, and that's on page 9 of your zines. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And because the people of Nineveh repented, the Lord did not send the calamity he promised. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall for fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. 
And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at the dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not attend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Next reading is Luke chapter chapter 15. So he, the prodigal son, got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Matilda. So why do we um, look at these stories? The answer is they're in the Bible. Um, The first story is 2,800 years old, and the second one's a story Jesus told 2,000 years ago. So why do we study them? And the answer is because we believe they're from God, these stories, and we believe that God gave us these stories to make sense of life now, and also to reveal something about his heart. So listen up closely, you know, and you've got to ask the question, why do we read those two stories? Why the story of Jonah and then the story of the older brother? And the answer is they're both similar people, both similar people, both beset by resentment. And in the same way that God addresses Jonah and says, hold on a second, do you have a right to be that angry? The father says to the older son, hold on a second, you know, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. Why are you so upset? But both times, Jonah and the older brother, the story's left hanging. Do they learn? What do they gain? Really amazing stuff. Do you want to, di- do you want to dig into it? You sure? We can go home, you know. We can go home. It's allowed. Okay, I'm going to pray. Let me pray. Um, Father, Sydney has more than five million people. 
uh, many cannot tell their spiritual right hand from their spiritual left hand. They don't know which way is up. They don't know you. You are concerned for this great city. May that which concerns you captivate our attention for Christ's sake. Amen. So Jonathan Swift once famously wrote, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough religion to make us love one another. It's a great quote. It's one of my favorites. Implications of the quote? Well, the implication is if we fully understood God, if we knew him, if we truly knew his love, his grace, his mercy, then that would drive us to an unusual love. We would look like Jesus Christ, who died for us while we were his enemies. That kind of love. But by having only a half understanding of God, a sort of religious worldview, dipping in, or worse, a false understanding of God, we might be driven to hate or to bitterness or to resentment or certainly to self-righteousness. I think religion often does lead people to self-righteousness, just like the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Now, I think Swift's observation is self-evident. Jonah, our subject for the, uh, tonight's talk, he hated the Ninevites and it was his half grasp on the truth, namely that God is indeed righteous and there are such a, such a thing as a, an unrighteous person like the Ninevites and that God had chosen Israel to be special. Both of those things are true. They're just not the whole truth about God. Those thoughts that he had caused him to hate the Ninevites. He put a wall up. That in the nature of his heart. So Jonah had just enough religion to make him hate the Ninevites, but not enough to make him love his enemies. And Jonah is all about um, slicing into Jonah's heart, slicing into our own hearts, revealing what they're really like, and then showing us a better way, showing us a gospel way. So we are in the fifth week in a 12-week series on the not-so-minor prophets, no sugarcoating of the human soul, no mere whispers of God's grace. In the series, the plan is to hear God's heartbeat, to listen and learn and get to know him. In the end, we want to trust Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of all the prophets. Jesus is the light after all the darkness of the prophets, and there's a lot of darkness. He is the resurrection after all the death, and there's a lot of death in the 6th and 8th century BC. The idea of the series is simple. One prophet each week for 12 weeks. We're in number five. We have a little break in two weeks' time. Today I want to speak in favour of God's crazy, infuriating grace, because that's what it is. He has a compassion that infuriates Jonah and maybe you. So two points today, if you're following your outline on page 12. Firstly, the story of Jonah, and secondly, its meaning for us and our lives. Firstly, the story of Jonah. You may or may not know the story. It's probably one of the best known stories in the Bible. You know, Jonah and the fish, gets swallowed by fish. 
But I believe that to hear the heartbeat of Jonah and therefore to hear God's heartbeat in this book, we have to spend our time in chapter 4, not in 1 or 2 or chapter 3. We have to spend our time in chapter 4. Why? Well, the first reason is I'm done with the fish taking over the story. I'm done with that. Okay, a fish follows Jonah, brilliant. But the fish is mentioned only in three sentences in the entire story, only three times. Now, Jesus mentions the time Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. We'll get to that at the end of the talk. The second reason we need to be in chapter four is that the punchline is at the end. If we spend all our time in, you know, the bad guys repenting, thumbs up, then we miss the punchline. This message is not for the irreligious types. This is not about the Ninevites. It's not about those sort of pagan Ninevites any more than the story of the prodigal son is about the younger son. No, this message, driven all the way to chapter 4, is a message for religious types. Jonah is written for precisely the kind of people to turn up the church tonight, including me. The moral of the story is at the end. So my plan is to go up and sit with Jonah on the hilltop in chapter 4 in a moment. But let me outline the story. If you didn't pick it while Matilda read to us, beautifully read, but not always easy to pick a whole story, here's how it goes. It's a great little story. It is satirical in nature. It's satire. It is intended to poke fun at religion and religious people, particularly in the 8th century BC with the ancient Israelites. The book is self-deprecating, for it's the Israelites who recorded Jonah's story and kept the story, including it in their canon. They put the book here. You wouldn't find Australians doing that about their history. At the very least, it functions as a parable, a story intended to expose the hearts of the ancient Israelites and modern Australians too. It's parallel, as we've seen in the Gospels, is the story of the older brother in the so-called parable of the prodigal son. Jonah is a prophet of Israel, the fifth of the minor prophets, although the book is unique because most of the prophets are a wall of sound. Um, hear this, hear this, hear this. For Jonah, the only few words he says is a couple of dire words to the Ninevites. Jonah's unique because it tells the story of Jonah's life, a little bit like Hosea. Jonah was called to go, not to Israel, but he was called to go to his great enemy, to Nineveh in Assyria. And in chapter 1, verse 2, God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. He's not there to preach the love of God. He's there to say, guess what, Ninevites? You're about to get wiped out. That's his message. Preach against it. We find out the exact words in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah is sent to preach this message to the city. In 40 days, the city will be overthrown, ransacked, overrun by an enemy. 
Now, what you need to know is that Jonah hates the Ninevites. They are his great enemy. Now, if you went today, Nineveh is just across the river from the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. So you think this Israelite would relish the chance, right? It's like a hardline conservative rabbi being told that they get to go to the leader of Hamas and tell them that they're about to be wiped out. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people who say, please, let me deliver that message. But Jonah goes the other way. Why? He goes the opposite way. He goes down to Joppa in chapter 1, verse 3, and pays the ferryman and heads off to Tarshish, which is probably in Spain. And you can see the map on page 12. In other words, he heads to Europe. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to Europe under such circumstances? And then you may know the story. God pursues Jonah in that boat through the Mediterranean Sea. And so we find ourselves in chapter one with Jonah in the boat. It was read out to us a moment ago, discovering that God pursues. You can't hide from him. But what you also discover is that the pagans on that boat are more responsive to God than Jonah is. Jonah gets thrown overboard. The sea goes calm, but God is with Jonah. He provides this fish. And so we find ourselves in chapter two with Jonah in the belly of the fish, God engulfs him, and he responds to God, praying to him, repenting, sort of. And then God has him spat out in chapter 3 towards Nineveh. So finally, heading back the other direction, the direction he was supposed to go in the first place, we find ourselves then with Jonah in the bustling city in chapter 3. And there in that city, Jonah says to his enemy... His dream message, chapter 3, verse 4, 40 more days in this city gets ransacked. And lo and behold, um, you know, the Ninevites, they catch a whiff of the judgment of God. And so they call on God, even the king does, by the way. And the king says, chapter 3, verse 9, not printed here, but he says, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I mean, that's just the word of the gospel, right? You know, who knows? Perhaps God might not actually send me to hell where I deserve to go. And the king gets it, by the way, with some level of humility. They catch a a whiff of God's judgment. And so they have this whiff of repentance. And God catches a whiff of their repentance. And he, lo and behold, God relents. He has compassion on them. And he relents from sin and their calamity. And so they survive. Jonah doesn't get what he wants. They live. By the way, chapter 3 is where all the kids' books end in just the same way that they end with the younger brother returning to the father in the parable of the prodigal son with the bad guys repenting. But the moment you end it there, you reinforce in the religious person the idea that it's about someone else. It's about the pagan. Finally, they've done something right, which they should have done in the first place, which I've always done. But chapter four is the punchline. You miss chapter four, you miss the story. So let's go up onto the hillside. And on that hillside, I want you to ask the question, why did Jonah head in the opposite direction in the first place? Why did he pay the ferryman and head to Europe? When I was a kid, like you, I thought it was because Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites. I mean, they were fierce. You can read about them in the British Museum. They were bloodthirsty. They were bullies. And what do you do with bullies? You avoid them. And so... He went to Europe, you know. Um, They were the superpower of the day, Israel's sworn enemy. And so, you know, who wants to go to the bad guys? I mean, it's just frightening. 
That's not the point at all. Jonah wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. Jonah was afraid of the love of God. And after watching Nineveh repent, after watching the compassion of God, after watching God decide not to destroy them, we find ourselves with Jonah on the hilltop overlooking the city. And we're told, chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah, all of this seemed very wrong. Aren't they God's enemies? This seems so wrong. And we're told he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? And in chapter 4, you, you get this glimpse. You don't get told in chapter 1. This is the first time you get told what he was thinking when he was still at home. In fact, he prayed now. He prayed when he was home. And basically, his prayer to God was, I told you that you were kind and compassionate. I knew you were. This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I went in that direction precisely because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were abounding love, and that bugs me. It infuriates me. I'm happy if you do it to Israel. I'm unhappy if you do it to my enemy. I'm unhappy that you're a God who relents from sending calamity in this instant. There's the punchline, by the way. I knew you were gracious. I knew it about you. And I knew the practical implications of this that maybe they might hear. If I, if I don't say anything to them, then in 40 days they get overrun. But if I say something to them, there's a door. And guess what? They pummeled through that door and God, you went right after them because that's what you do. You can't stop yourself, God. I suspected says Jonah, all along that this would end badly. I knew it would end in tears. I knew that'd be my tears. Because I know you. The love of God is an amazing thing. It comforts me. It shapes people. The love of God renews lives and saves lives. But the love of God also challenges me. It bugs us. He is compassion that infuriates. And if we truly understood the love of God, now you can know the love of God through Jesus Christ. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So we know his love, but imagine if you would open up his heart and see it in all, the love of God in all its fullness, in all its glory. I'm telling you right now, it would confound you. We were never called to go to Nineveh, but Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are the people of the love of God. I think what's interesting is that that love or that understanding of his love gets tested when you're on a frontier. And there are lots of frontiers. Frontiers expose the heart, you know, from a distance, from a safe distance. You can criticize people who hate you know, who want to pick up a weapon or take revenge. Very easy to do that when you're sitting behind a white picket fence in Australia. But there's something about a frontier that exposes your heart. Here's another frontier, by the way. An event or a, um, a moment of suffering that makes you question the love of God. You know, when you're singing songs to Jesus safe in church, you know, it was all thumbs up. 
Jonah believed in the love of God safe in Israel. Jonah believed in the love of God when God was going to express his love towards his own countrymen, but not when he sees his enemies repent, not when he sees them transform, not when he sees them learn. So that's the story. You finish in chapter 3, you destroy the story of its meaning. You go to chapter 4, you receive it in all its fullness. With me? You so far? Okay. What is the meaning of this story for us? What has God got for us in this story? And I've got three things there on your outline. If you are afraid of the love of God, it will lead to at least three things. More than this, but at least, at least these three things from chapter 4. It will lead to a bitterness and despair. And conversely, by the way, embracing the love of God will lead to joy, humility, and confidence. But in Jonah's case, it led to bitterness and despair. Coretta Scott King once said, hate is too great a burden to bear. It injures the hater more than it injures the hated. Lovely line from Jordan Peterson when he says, Check your resentment. Check it. For all its pathology, it is revelatory. You like that? You can see the resentment in Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. To Jonah, this seemed all so wrong. And he became angry. In the Hebrew, I'm told the word is very angry, infuriated. The kind of anger that leads to bitterness and despair. Look at verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I knew this would happen. Now I want to die. Same in verse 8 and verse 9. God said to Jonah, you know, is it right for you to be angry? Earlier in the chapter. And then is it right for you to be angry about this plant? God will look at this in a moment. Said a plant. Took the plant away. Jonah is uncomfortable. And God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, people have death thoughts for all sorts of reasons, but the love of God being poured out is not usually one of them. I don't know if you know the story of Simon Wiesenthal, a Polish Jew who during the Second World War had witnessed Nazi war soldiers kill 89 of his relatives, and he himself was forced into a labor camp. One day in the labor camp, he was approached by a nurse who asked him, are you Jewish? And he said he was. And so the nurse led him down a dark and musty alley into a room where a lone German soldier lay bruised and bloodied on a table after, after war wounds. And the soldier said to Wiesenthal, the Jew, he said, my name is Karl, and I must tell you of my horrible deeds, I must tell you because you are a Jew. Three times Wiesenthal tried to pull away, wanting to leave, but each time the officer reached out and grabbed him, begging him to listen. The officer ended this way. He said, I am left here alone with my guilt. I know that what I have told you is horrible, and in the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Now, sidebar, 
I'm not sure whether Wiesenthal has the power to forgive him in that moment. The sin was not committed against him. But leaving that aside, what does Wiesenthal say? Wiesenthal wrote that he felt in that moment the immense crushing burden of his race. He looked down at the man trying to decide what to do. At last I made up my mind, Wiesenthal writes, and without a word, I left the room. Wiesenthal wrote a book about it afterwards called, get your pens out, just joking, (laughs) The Sunflower, The Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness, in which he told the story in part one, and in the second part he asked famous people, what would you have done in my place? Now most responded saying he'd done the right thing, that forgiveness did not belong with this man. Friedrich Nietzsche viewed forgiveness along with pity and compassion, by the way, the attributes of our God. He viewed forgiveness along with pity and compassion as the sniveling vice of the weak and resentful who pass themselves off as lofty and magnanimous. Wiesenthal did some incredibly good things. He spent his life searching for justice and looking for Nazi war criminals, South America, etc. But in many ways, driven, driven uh, by an understandable bitterness. Conversely, the love of God leads to grace and forgiveness, not always reconciliation. I'll give an example of that. Philip Yancey wrote about the St. Wiesenthal story in his book, get your pens out, What's So Amazing About Grace? And Philip Yancey uh, wrote this about um, a rabbi. Yancey said, I once heard of an immigrant rabbi making an astonishing statement, and it's this, Before coming to America, I had to forgive Adolf Hitler. I did not want to bring Adolf Hitler inside me to this new country. Not that that rabbi has the power to forgive Adolf Hitler, and Hitler had ended his life well before anyway. But you see the point, don't you, about the heart, about grace. See, God is a God who forgives and showers mercy. See, I take it, that the whole world is like that German soldier on that table. The whole world is battered and bruised by her own sin and I'm a part of it. I'm on that table with the world because I partake in that sin. And I'm looking for a word from another Jew, not Simon Wiesenthal. I'm looking for a word from Jesus Christ. I want to know that there's forgiveness I want to know that he doesn't walk out the door without a word. I want to know that there's a gospel, a message from God, that there is grace for sinners like me. And that's going to lead to joy and confidence and humility rather than bitterness and despair. First. Second, fear leads to a ghetto mindset. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out of the city and he sat up on a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Maybe Jonah's hoping that God would relent from his relenting. He's hoping for fireworks up on the hillside, looking down on the city. Now, this is a little metaphor, really, for what many Jews in, in the 8th century did. They had the natural tendency to think 
positively about self and negatively about others. And it's what many religious Christian people can do as well. And so we end up separating ourselves from the outside world, from the great city. We go outside of it to see what will happen. Jonah separates himself from the people he perceives as being the bad people. And they're not good, by the way. And we're not talking about um, you know, him just being a little less judgmental. They are not good people. But this book is in part about presence, about Jonah's presence in the great city. It's about incarnation, being right there, about being in and where the sin is. Jonah is called to go into the city, not away from it. And given this, we need to think about our own lives. You know, I don't know about you, but it's like, you know, wow, it's like life is about creating my own space, my own home, my own garden, in which I feel comfortable, nice homes, picket fences. There's nothing wrong with this, don't get me wrong. But as a metaphor for separation against other people whom you don't like. I love the cheeky comment by Anne Lamont. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God can't stand all the people you do. We've got to find ways to love people whom we don't naturally love and to have a presence in the city and not away from it. These Thursday community evenings are meant to be just that, by the way, meant to be just that, not creating Christian ghettos behind sandstone buildings, but we're meant to be present and outward-looking and loving. Dr. Natasha Moore this week leading a discussion on making sense of work. She's going to take a story from the Gospels. And the idea is very simple. People who believe can sit in the same room as people who are not sure who can sit in the same room as people who are sure that the whole thing's phony. And we can be safe together as we explore and answer life's important questions. So no ghettos for Christians, right therein. And the third thing is that fear leads to an undervaluing of people, not see them as created in the image of God. And then you value, I don't know, things like plants over human beings. God provided this vine, which I'm told exists, they grow up overnight and can provide enough shade. And Jonah, like you and me, delights in the comfort of the shade. But in verse 7, God sends a worm that chews through the vine, ate it up so that there's no vine left. The next day, when verse 8, God sends a scorching wind with the sun beating down on, you know, Jonah's, I like to think of him as bald. He's got no 50 plus sunscreen and that heat is bearing down on them. And yesterday he had this beautiful plant that gave him comfort. God provides a worm to take the plant away. It's interesting, we like to think of the book as being about a fish, but in the main chapter, it's all about a worm. We know about the fish, but the main lesson in Jonah comes via a worm. It doesn't come via a fish. But I think we should call the book Jonah and the Worm. I think that would work very well. And what's the point? The point is this. End of the book. Chapter 4, verse 10, the Lord said, Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant he didn't tend it. He didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died. You're concerned about a plant. Well, shouldn't I be concerned for the great city of Nineveh? Shouldn't I love it? Of which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right from their left hand. They don't know they're up from their down. They don't know God. 
Should not be concerned. They don't know me. The moral of the story is that God loves beyond borders and Israel was blessed by God to be a blessing. That was the call of God on her. Israel was called to share the love of God with her enemies, a task she failed to do. But Jesus, her Messiah, succeeded when he came and died the death I deserve. But Jonah's concerned about a vine. We like comfort, we like vines. We like trees, we like gardens, we love beauty, but God values human beings more than he loves trees. Sydney is a city that doesn't know its right from its left hand, doesn't know up from down, doesn't know God. We're called to be on mission, speaking to the city, present, not on the hilltop, showing Sydney the love of God and calling her to repentance. You see, Jesus said that he was the new Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, sent to get his people to think outside of themselves. In fact, Jesus rebuked his own countrymen, the Israelites, when they asked him to dance. Not literally. They said to him, show us a sign and we'll believe you. You know, It's like, God, dance. Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. You don't ask God to dance. You don't ask him to prove himself to you. Jesus says, no, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It's the only sign I'll give is Jonah's sign. And what is Jonah's sign? Matthew 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, in the same way, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He will die, Jesus. He will go to a tomb three, for three days. Jesus went down into the earth. He died so that both the religious person and the irreligious person could find grace. He died so that grace might save and transform younger brothers who end up in the pigsty of their own choices, as well as grace transforming and saving older brothers, I think probably like me, entitled people, who, religious people who are unable to celebrate grace because we think we are good. No, we need to respond to Jesus like the Ninevites responding to God. Matthew 12, verse 41 the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and they'll condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now someone even greater than Jonah is here. What would enough religion look like to make us love one another? It looked like Jesus Christ, straight from God. Jesus is the light that dispels the darkness. He is the resurrection after all the death. Let's pray. Father, reveal your compassion to us in powerful, spirit-filled ways. Show us your mercy and kindness. Reveal in us the ways in which hate demonstrates that we haven't fully appropriated and received your grace and mercy. And then transform us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.